Welcome to I Want That, which is a brand new series here at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. Since there are so many cool Disney-related collectibles coming in the market these days, we thought we'd try and put together a show that would then keep tabs on these sorts of things. And when I say we, well, I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and now let me bring in my I Want co-host, Michelle Valladolid. Hi. She's actually the woman who created Jim Hill Media back in 2003, and you've got to cover a lot of really cool things over the 26 years that I've known you. You were there for the 25th anniversary of Walt Disney World. You worked as a reporter at that. Let's see, also both the 50th and the 60th anniversary of Disneyland. You wrote for Disney Magazine. Right. You were in Disney Magazine as a member right. of the first family of, of Animal Kingdom. That's uh, right. That's right. We were. <laughs> yeah. That was in the 25th anniversary of Walt Disney World issue. And then I wrote for a couple, one with uh, Mickey on the cover. Can't miss ah. it. Okay. <laughs> you also helped start the Orlando, Florida chapter of the National Fantasy Fan Club with David Schiller, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, there was there was actually a little group of us that plotted and planned, and it was a lot of fun. Cool. Well, you remember. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you helped Al Lutz found the Mouse Planet website. You taught a theme park history class at one of Orange County's universities. And on the collectible side of the street, uh, Michelle is no slouch either. While you may have missed the original official Disneyana convention, which was held at Walt Disney World's Contemporary Resort back in... September of 92, if I'm remembering. You prowled the dealer rooms and attended panels at virtually every Disney-related event since, except for the, you were saying... Destination D. Yeah, I've never been to Destination D. And that's got all my favorite stuff, all the early Epcot Center stuff. The Orange Bird, that's right in the fields, right there. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's Epcot, <laughs> my favorite park. Um, anyway, um, moving back to the collectible sphere... You actually started the Trader Sam mug trading page over on Facebook, right? And Right, right. It's a group. When uh, Grog Grotto opened in uh, April of 2015, mm-hmm. I noticed that people who, I mean, I knew people like myself who uh, were fans of the Enchanted Tiki Bar at the Disneyland Resort, and that opened in May of 2011. So that was fine. But when... The new one opened, Grog Grotto opened in 2015. The only way you could really get mugs from there was through eBay, and there were some just obscene markups on the mugs there. So I decided, well, make this group, 20 or 30 people will get together and and trade mugs. And it's really worked. And now there are more than 5,000 members. So yeah, I would say that's, that's reasonably successful. So yeah. And David Ye does all the babysitting for me whenever there's trouble. But it's really a great group of people. Now, obviously, you're somebody who knows something about the Walt Disney Company, obviously knows about the world of collectibles, and, and this runs in the family as well. Your husband, Noah, has one of the the country's truly great Oswald the Lucky Rabbit collections. The largest in the U.S. There we go. And your daughter, Alice, who also happens to be my daughter, Alice, she has a genuinely terrific collection of Lupin items. In fact, she just yeah, scored... Lupin the Third. It's a, it's a Japanese anime, and it's incredible. It's really good. You should look mm-hmm. it up. But she just scored one of those limited edition Lupin 
popcorn buckets from Universal Studios Japan, right? Yes, and let me tell you, this thing is perfectly on model. It's the Fiat mm-hmm. that uh, he drives, and it's the three of them in there. The The trunk opens up, and that's where the popcorn is stored. But this is a beautifully on model sculpt, and of course, Japan. It's a popcorn bucket. There you go. Because everything's better in Japan, but we'll talk about that later. Okay. One other thing is I collect stuff, too. And what might that be? Well, I have a really large collection of Kylo Ren stuff. And I also have some things from Epcot Center, the original, not Epcot as it is now. And, uh, of course, Orange Bird. And some Mary Blair things. I have a Mary Blair screen print I'm really proud of. Okay, getting back to popcorn buckets for a moment. Did you see the photos from the Disneyland Resort back on February 1st? Uh, This was when annual pass holders stood in hours-long lines so they could then spend 20 bucks on an annual pass holder exclusive popcorn bucket, which I guess was supposed to be this Mickey Mouse balloon-shaped thing that... I think it it was more like a popcorn bucket of an antenna ball. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty apt, actually. But uh, this was done to commemorate Steamboat Willie. It was black and white and gray and topped with a Steamboat Willie hat, but yeah. And it looked like an elongated antenna ball, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It did. It did. Now, you had found out through folks at Mice Chat, I guess, Mm -hmm. the Disneyland Resort had made 36,000 of these things? Yeah, yeah. I saw a photo. We have a moderators group, and I get to see more photos than even going to the photo-packed articles there. And one of them said, you know, box 19 of 1,846 or something like that. I mean, a lot. A lot. Okay. But even with 36,000 of these things, as I understand it, they managed to sell them all out in, in one day, and, and that's with supposedly annual passers only being allowed to buy one each? Yeah, well, well, the funny thing about that is I've seen photos of these annual pass holders wearing 20 of them. Okay. And how do you do that with one pass? That is a question. The place where a lot of these things end up is eBay. I went over to eBay and checked out in the, the Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse balloon-shaped popcorn buckets. If you want to go the buy it now route, prices range from $91 to $119. If, on the other hand, you want to take your chance on a really real auction, another quick look around eBay shows that these very same annual pass holder exclusive items, I think they're ranging for starting bid of 41 to as high as 81 if you go back to the live streams of, you know, people at the park, you know, and them posting the pictures of the people in line, and when they finally got their popcorn bucket, the stuff that was being said online wasn't necessarily all that happy. There were no. lots of complaints about the paint job on the buckets, and some of them were talking about how, I mean, they were literally handed something that was all scuffed up. And they weren't allowed to check them out beforehand. It's just, you get what you get, move on. For the poor cast members who were at these popcorn carts selling these things, I mean, they were looking at the line. They were just trying to move people along. And if you go to eBay, you type in Steamboat Willie Popcorn Bucket. The other thing that comes up is a popcorn bucket that was created for Tokyo Disney Japan. Came out last year in November. 
it kind of buries the needle in the exact opposite direction. I mean, for starters, it's it's a, a recreation of the steamboat from the 1928 short that started it all. And the interesting thing is on the boat, they have an on-model Mickey. He's at the steering wheel of the steamboat. He's He's got his foot raised as if he's tapping his foot to turkey in the straw. I mean, it, it's a great-looking item, you know, and... If you go on eBay right now, you can pick this beauty up, which you can put on your mantle for half of what you'd pay for the antenna ball, which... But listen, stuff from Japan is always better. At, mm. least, at least when it comes to theme park stuff. Stuff from Japan is always better. You're going to hear that a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> going back to the Disneyland Resort now. So as you mentioned... These photos of, of people with 20-some-odd popcorn buckets around their neck, you know, obviously headed to eBay. But December of last year, the Orange County Register reported that the Disneyland Resort had quietly been revoking the annual passes of people who were buying limited-edition merch at the parks and then making these items available for purchase at a significant markup. You remember those Funko pop figures? Oh, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. All right. So, I mean, we, for example, we had the Enchanted Tiki one that dropped a June of last year that had the Barker Bird the and Barker Pele. Bird, yeah. We had the Splash Mountain one the last August that had Br'er Bear and Br'er Fox in a log together and $40 a piece for those things. You were talking about the one that the, you really... The the Haunted Mansion one with Ezra riding the Doom buggy. Yeah, I mean... Also $40 a piece, yeah. Yeah, and as recently as last month, we had the Allison uh, Mad Teacup Cup from the the Disneyland attraction. Uh, that one, again, went for forty nine ninety nine. Yeah. So here's Disney cracking down on people who are buying these things. On the original day of sale for these Funko things, people could buy 10 of them at a time and i'm sorry if you're buying 10 of in anything about what's the old saying that if you buy three of anything that's a collection and mm -hmm. if you're buying 10 that's a shelf of merchandise right what am i not understanding about this here's where what i think and it could be true or not those were open the funcos were open to anyone the popcorn buckets and things like that are annual pass holder exclusives mm-hmm and so if you can just buy it on eBay, it loses its exclusivity. So why buy an annual pass? And the other thing is it's actually been against the rules since 2001 mm -hmm. to uh, use your annual pass to purchase merchandise that you intend to sell. And that's because Disney loses out on that 20% merchandise discount or 10% discount um, when they could have that, but you're buying it using your discount and then selling it. Mm. And that's what really makes them mad. Okay. I don't know how many of you were aware of the In the Book line, uh, which is published by Signature. Those are great. They publish 30 different Disney-related books, uh, both hardcovers and softcovers, that then allow your kids to relive some of Disney and Pixar's most recent blockbusters, movies like... Uh, Moana, Finding Dory, and Toy Story 3. Not to mention stories featuring beloved Disney characters like Mickey Mouse, Olaf from Frozen, and Sophia the First. 
But what's really great about this in the book series is thanks to the personalization option that this publisher makes available to its customers, they can then add magic to a story by right into the adventure. I know everybody has seen those kiosks at the mall or, or wherever where you can have your child's name inserted into the book and it's kind of chintzy. This is not that at all. This is so much higher quality and the blending in is so seamless. In the book has an exclusive license with Disney, which includes these special can-bound Disney collections. And, and you know what they say, one book is enough to transform someone's world. Yeah. So if, if you have a reader in your family who might want that as the next gift. Or a Disney little Disney fan that you want to be a reader. There we go. Uh, why not visit inthebook.com, where you can get a magical 50% off of your first order just by using this code. I want that 50. That's all that one for. I want that 50? Five zero, not F-I-F-T-Y. Okay, so <laughs> we're 15 minutes into a brand new show here, and we've managed to save you money. So, Yay! But again, you know, not, not all stories are, are happy stories. And, and in fact, when we were doing the pregame for this podcast, Michelle called me back and let me know that we had lost Ron Miller. And I think it might be nice uh, after we get back from the commercial break to talk about how important this guy was to Disney company history. And we're back. The day this drops is Valentine's Day, right? Mm-hmm. Happy Valentine's Day to my favorite ex-husband. Well, and but, happy. <laughs> but, you know, looking at Ron Miller's life, he and Diane were so in love all the way to the very end. In a interview that he gave near the end of his life, he actually, they asked him, if you had a magic wand, what would you do? And he said, I'd have Diane right back next to me. Being alone has been rough. Yeah, that's from the interview. He, I mean, yeah, he literally did that two months ago with the Knob Hill Gazette. And he was talking about the fact that he'd been alone for five years and how tough that was. But again, they married in 54? Yeah. A long, long time. But anyway, I mean, Ron, uh, for those of you who, who don't know uh, Ron's story, this is the man who who married Diane Disney, Walt's daughter. And because Walt and Lily never had any sons, sort of a, a misconception that Ron then became the heir apparent, you know, when, yeah, when no. Walt, Walt passed in December of 66. And no, that, that wasn't the case at all. I mean, this was a guy who really was determined to have his own path in life. I mean, he went to USC, he went into the Army, he came back out and he played for the Rams, didn't he? Yeah, the L.A. Rams. And yeah. I kind of wonder if he was happy that they finally moved back home. But this was the 61 season. Right. And going back to that wonderful interview in the Knob Hill Gazette, he talked about how the end of that first season, Walt comes up and says, so what are you going to do next year? And he said, well, you know, they've asked me to come back. And at that time, Diane and I had two children. And Walt said, I think you should really consider the fact that I am not going to father two children if you get your butt killed out there on the gridiron. And Walt then finished up with, I'd like to offer you a job. But not, here's the keys to the corner office. Right, no, he, he came in as a bottom-level producer, and do you know what his first, first work was? Mm, no. Old Yeller. Okay. <laughs> Love a story with a happy Disney ending. Interesting thing about 
Old Yeller is that it brought some very adult emotions into what ostensibly was a children's story. In fact, again, a kind of interesting story about Walt that Ron once shared with me that he talked about how, I want to say this was 62 or thereabouts, and they had arranged for a print of To Kill a Mockingbird to be delivered to Walt's Homeby Hills home. And so Ron sat there with Walt and they watched this movie. And and at the end, Walt supposedly turned to Ron and said, God, that's the sort of movie I'd love to make at Disney Studios. But people would kill me if I made some, tried to make something like that. Trapped in his own castle, as it were. Yeah, well, for so many years, Disney had either, it was feast or famine. If, if an animated feature hit, Ah, oh, wonderful time. You know, you can you have the money to, to build a brand new studio. If, on the other hand, it doesn't hit, you hope to God you have training films lined up. You can yeah. limp along and, and make payroll. But it's weird because, I mean, one of the one of the films for during Ron's time, Tron, mm-hmm. was not a huge financial success, but it's become a such a cult classic that they actually made a sequel just a few years ago. And, of course, the, the, don't forget the attraction that was built in Shanghai that's being duplicated in oh, yeah. Walt yeah, Disney World coaster. now. Thank you, Ron. <laughs> Ron saw that movies like Absent Minded Professor or The Shaggy Dog kept the lights onto the studio and, and provided the money to do the other things. Which is like Walt used the Disneyland park to start planning his Epcot city. Yeah, and at at the same time, all of the money that Walt made off of Mary Poppins in 64-65 then made it possible to do the land purchasing in Florida and that sort of thing. Though Exactly. Maypo. If you actually drill down into the annual report that was published the year we lost Walt, 1966, he actually talks about in his letter to shareholders there about, we've had this amazing su- success with, with Mary Poppins, and but we're not going to make a sequel. We learned from the Three Little Pigs that you can't top pigs with pigs. And you know, and then he actually talks about things that they made after he was gone. In fact, there's a, a line in there where they talk about a film called Boy Girl Car that eventually becomes The Love Bug. Huge hit. Monstrous hit. I mean, in 1960s, Eight. There were only two other movies that Hollywood released that made more money. And one of them was, was 2001 A Space Odyssey, and the other one was Funny Girl. But uh, number three at the box office was, was Love Bug, if you can believe it. But So we jump ahead now to the, the mid-1970s, and Walt's been gone for a while, and Disney Studios has kind of lost its way. It's doing things like safe sequels. So Shaggy Dog was a hit in 1960. 1976, let's make the Shaggy DA. And The Love Bug, you know, was this huge hit in 1968. Let's run that franchise straight into the ground with what? Uh, you know. Herbie Goes Bananas and Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo. Yeah. So, and Ron is, is sitting inside, you know, and it's just sort of like looking at this management team that's in place there that's Constantly. Trapped in his father-in-law's castle. Yeah, and, and, you know, they're constantly looking over their shoulder, and it's like, what would Walt do? And, and Ron, and of see, all people... And that thing it always bothers me. That always... Oh, well, Walt would do this. Walt would do that. Walt would want that. Diane Disney Miller said in her lifetime 
that mm. even she and her mother and her sister never knew what yep. Walt was going to do next. Mm -hmm. So for them to try to second guess a dead man who could never be pinned down in life mm -hmm. was disastrous. But the weird thing is that Ron was the guy who remembered Walt longed to make adult films like To Kill a Mockingbird, which is why he sets up Disney's adult division, Touchstone, back right. in February of 84. Which brought us Splash and Who Framed Roger Rabbit and, and all sorts of films like that. And those mm. films were both, they were being worked on while Ron was there. And yeah, yeah, someone else yeah. took the credit. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that's business. And at the same time, Ron constantly fought with the company because there was stuff that was started in Walt's time. I mean, there was, for example, Disney's big features, uh, the animated ones. Uh, they right. would come out of the vault every seven years. Right, I remember and that. And what the thinking was, every seven years, there's a new generation of children, and so these things stay evergreen. And that's about how long it took to make one of those back then. Here's Ron, and it's like, look, staring at VHS and Beta marching over the horizon, and it's like, guys, we're in a different world now. Or, or more to the point, the notion that all that Disney really needed as a presence on television was a show on Sunday nights. And it's like, no, no, no. look at... Look at an HBO. Look at a Showtime. It's like, we have this huge library of material. We should have our own channel. And not to speak disrespectful of the dead, but it always frustrated me that Card Walker, the, the gentleman who was CEO before Ron, uh, you know, he constantly put the kibosh on a lot of the stuff that Ron was trying to do. He was nice and he mm. was well-meaning, but well-meaning does not always make a successful company. The other thing I think to remember was that with Card, Card literally came through the door and he was a delivery boy at the studio. I mean, he came in in, yeah. in the 1940s and literally from the guy who rode the bicycle around making deliveries at the studio to end up at the CEO. So he had this very rigid thought about, you know, he was there to preserve the Walt Disney Company. Walt had died almost 20 years previous, and he was there to make sure that what Walt built was preserved, where the interesting thing with Ron well, it is... stopped Ron, being a studio and started being a museum. Yeah, and, and it would, which again, the you know, the real irony of this thing is after Ron gets booted out the door in 84 by, ironically enough, uh, you know, that, that that's the part of the story that always kind of fascinates me, is that Ron... Again, a lot of people Idiot. don't know yeah. this. What is it? 1983. Ron is, is looking to overhaul Disney, bring in some bright, young, motivated people to sort of turn the company around. And one of the people he brings in is Michael Eisner, who at that point is the president of Paramount Pictures. And it's just the whole notion of, you know, what would you think about coming in here and, and helping us at Disney? Because frankly, at that point, out of the eight studios in Hollywood, Disney was eighth at the box office. last, yeah. Yeah. And Michael Eisner would have been good with a Ron Miller to help steer him, just like he was great with Frank Wells to steer him. But mm. if that steering influence is gone... No, I agree. Things I happen. Agree. <laughs> you know, and that's, I think, the, the ironic part of the story is, again, here's Ron Miller who didn't want the Walt Disney Company to be, um, excuse me, Walt Disney Productions back then to be a museum and what ends up happening is that 
Jump ahead 20 years and he and Diane start the Walt Disney Family Museum up on the Presidio in San Francisco. Though, for actually, intriguingly enough, an entirely different reason. Oh, yeah. What is it? Mark Elliott's book, The Dark Prince of, of Hollywood? Yeah. That Diane... Hey, you wa- would know this. You would know what? this. Is it true that the person who backed him on that book was Michael Eisner? I don't believe so. No, it was... It was Neil Gabler's book. Yeah, that was the authorized biography Mark operated on his own. Anyway, getting back to the Walt Disney Family Museum, and they did a wonderful job there. It's, it's to this day, an amazing facility. But again, it, and it, it shows was... Walt as a beloved family man who really loved his family. Mm-hmm. And also was this creative genius who knew how to hire the best talent and etc., but again, you know, the the irony was that the Walt Disney Family Museum was really Diane's baby. Oh, and yeah. But Ron... Like the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles. But Ron was right there. That's it, exactly. So Ron was a humble guy. He didn't like to brag. And I got to talk with him a number of times over the past 10 years. And whenever I'd see Ron, it was always just at some point... Just introduced the idea of, you know, you really need to write a book because it's the the period. I mean, first of all, nobody had the sort of contact with Walt that you had. And then never mind the fact that from 66 all the way up to the early 80s, you know, is the, I think, the most underreported period in the Disney company history. And there's so many, you know, I mean. And so many things about immediately after Disney War and uh, storming the Magic Kingdom and stuff. But. That was like a really silent period. And Jim, you ought to write a book. No, I mean, again, that, that's the man who should have written the book is no longer with us. And that's yeah, that's a frustration. That's a I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that the Miller children or the grandchildren step up here and do right by their grandfather's legacy. Well, the museum is them doing right by their grandfather's legacy. Well, I'm, I'm talking about Ron, not Walt. Oh, yeah, about, yeah, Ron's so. legacy, definitely. So. But uh, there is still Silverado Vineyards that he started with Diane in the 80s. This is true. And uh, really good wine. And I, you're talking about your, your time talking to him. I actually met him. Oh. And he shook okay. my hand and said, nice to meet you. A very gracious guy. So. <laughs> yeah, he was. All right. Okay, folks. Speaking of the end, we are coming to the end of our first I Want That podcast. We're going to leave you folks with a homework assignment. We were talking <laughs> out ahead of the show about, well, some of the stuff we wanted to talk about. And it occurred to Michelle and myself, it was like, now, wait a minute. When was the first time that Disney parks and resorts made guests exit through a gift shop. Not next to a gift shop. Yeah. Or, you know, not with a cart outside, you know. Because next so, to, yeah. I can think of about 20. But yeah, through the first time. What do you think? I'm going to float one, see if, if folks back me up here. Now, when Pirates of the Caribbean opened at Walt Disney World, that was a rush job, right? Because... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Originally, they were going to be doing... Um, Western River Expedition. There you go. Boy, that would be problematic today. Would be. Would be. But <laughs> but So they rushed it in there, and that's why it's kind of a Reader's Digest version of the Disneyland version of Pirates. But yeah. when you come up through 
the escalator there. In fact, I want to say, was it Mark Davis was telling me a little bit about it. The initial concern, because it was Florida, it would the it was going to rain a lot, so they wanted to put people undercover while they were mm-hmm. coming out. And they said, well, you know, we'll put them undercover and create a little retail space. And so that was what, Plaza de Sol Caribe Bazaar? Maybe. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> okay. So uh, just to be clear here, we're talking about you entering a merch space, coming off a rideshow of attraction that's, that then you're surrounded by the merchandise for that attraction. I mean... I think, Michelle, you pointed out that, you know, when folks finished uh, Adventures Through Inner Space oh, at yeah, Disneyland, yeah. they exited into a gift shop, but that was like the character shop. The character was... shop, which is a great character shop, man. What a mm. great shop. But, yeah, you couldn't buy Monsanto stuff there. Okay. So, just a little homework, folks. So, if you can, if you think of any rideshow and attractions, or, or, or the first one that you recall when that was the experience. And, again, we're talking about... A place with dedicated merch. Well, David Mumford used to tell this wonderful story about that supposedly you have 57 seconds to get people from the moment the ride pulls into the offload area. If you can get them in front of merch in 57 seconds, their sales resistance at that point is still low enough that they'll spring for the $35 sweatshirt. How do they know? Well, I, evidently somebody sat there with a stopwatch and just watched people. Literally kept tabs on how long it took them to get to the merch. And at exactly 58 seconds, it's like, hmm. Yeah, well, that's that. exactly. Well, the blood <laughs> was returning from other parts of the body. And like, <laughs> Do I really need that? So if you could let us know what you think on this topic, and we'll further explore it, but... Also, uh, let us know what you think of this brand new podcast here at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. And Michelle, when you're you're not going to be here talking about merch, where can folks find you online? Usually at micechat.com. Okay. Well, again, folks, this is I Want That, and we hope that you want more of I Want That. So please let us know. And till the next time, take care, okay? <laughs>